Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is Ali Tamaseb, partner at BCBC, a venture capital fund that backs companies using deep tech. Ali is also a published author, having recently written Super Founders, a book that uses a data-driven approach to understand what really differentiates billion-dollar startups from the rest and that has revealed that nearly everything we thought was true about them is actually false. In this episode, we discuss what Ali learned after spending thousands of hours manually amassing what may be the largest data set ever collected on startups, background of fintech founders of companies like PayPal, Brex, Affirm, and Stripe, and the trade they all shared that prepared them to launch these massively successful companies, and why he hopes his research and book will help reduce bias in the industry of what successful entrepreneurs look like. And now I hope you enjoy my conversation with Ali Tamaseb. Ali, welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. How are you today? I am doing great. I'm glad to be here with you all. Yeah, we're excited to have you and excited to learn more about you and then learn more about some of the exciting projects that you've been up to recently and obviously about your book. But uh, maybe we can get started by just hearing a bit about you and about your background and, and how you got started in the industry. Sure. Way back, I was an academic. I was doing research on brain-computer interfaces a decade before Elon Musk made that industry sexy. After that, I'd, I'd started a company in the, in the wearables and industrial hardware space, selling hardware to people in warehouses and factories. And that was kind of before I found my way into the venture capital side, coming back to the other side of the table and investing and you know, giving back and helping these founders create massive companies. So I'm a partner with DCVC. We are a Silicon Valley-based fund with over $2 billion under management and about 15 unicorn investments so far. And mostly do deep tech, so companies that are solving very complex engineering or scientific challenges. Got it, got it. And why specifically transition first from academia and to entrepreneurship and then into venture capital? Yeah, I guess at each point it was something that created a bug in me to build something. So it's my my academic time or the things that I was working on. I always had an eye towards you know what's applicable. So the first version of the product that I built was, was a continuation of my research. But then through market discovery, I found out, you know, maybe I need to change that more radically. And that's how I turned out to be a hardware founder and entrepreneur before becoming an investor. And I guess that the move from being a founder to investor, being an investor is a great job. You get to leverage uh, your time to work on multiple companies and be able to help invest in a number of different entrepreneurs who are risking their life and career with very exciting technologies. And I think the type of companies we invest in, that makes me very excited because they are cancer therapies and you know manufacturing technologies, very, very hard stuff, a lot of rockets and planet, you know, space stuff, which is exciting. It reminds me of one of our guests from last year, Sebastian Seria, who's the founder of Contigo. And he was an academic at Columbia University. And after seeing some of his students leave and launch huge companies, <laughs> you realize, you know, if my students are doing, you know, let the professor do it as well. <laughs> 
So that's super interesting. But I think to me, what's even more interesting is that you've actually, over the last few years, you've done significant research on entrepreneurship and this research has converted into a book, right? Yeah. So let's hear about it, right? First of all, why decide to write a book? It's not an easy task. It's not an easy task. And the data collection part was even harder. I think the whole way it, this started, you know, we hear a lot of stories from media about these successful companies. We've probably all seen the social network movie about Zuckerberg. We know about the stories of Steve Jobs and Wozniak, business visionary and a technical genius building a company. And I guess they have created a bias, a narrative bias in a lot of our minds about what makes for a successful entrepreneur. Through my job, I felt like a lot of these very successful companies do not look like what I thought they look or do not look like what we are hearing from media. Young person solving their own personal problem, technical, a lot of these things, it didn't necessarily look to me that they were right. So I thought the best way to get to ground truth is to collect data on all the billion dollar companies that were started in the past 15 years and all the companies that raised venture capital funding but did not become billion dollar companies. So I could compare them and see you know, what's actually different between them. And nobody has done that or nobody has done that on this scale because it's a hard thing. It literally took me four years, all my weekends, all my evenings. It's a manual data collection task of 30,000 data points, you know, going all the way to internet archives and you know, reading history, emailing these founders, doing surveys, trying to understand back in 2007 what the competitive landscape for this specific company looked like. And back in 2011, what the market dynamic for this company looked like trying to better understand the ground truths about the career path of a lot of these founders that I studied. So it's 65 elements for about you know 500 companies that I looked at. And that's basically, that was a lot of work. And the results were so shocking that I decided to actually turn it into a book because it showed me that a lot of things that people think matters and correlate with success, they don't. And there's a lot of other things that they do. So I also interviewed you know people from Peter Thiel and Keith Raboy and Alfred Lin on the investor side, and also you know founders of Zoom and GitHub and Instacart and Nest and Affirm, PayPal, a lot of these companies to add color and stories to the data. And that's how the book came around and it's just come out. Yeah, no, congratulations. It's an awesome book, Super Founders. And you know, specifically, let's talk about those results. Right. I mean, let's start maybe by hearing some of those myths around founders, right? And I know you talk about myths of background education and work experience and how this contrasts from what you found. Yeah. Maybe, you know, there's a bunch. There's like 20, 30 myths that are debunked in the book. Let's give a couple examples. One is about domain expertise. So I think a lot of people are looking for founders who have come from that industry and they know people in that industry or, you know, that's the type of background that a lot of investors are looking for or a lot of founders think that, you know, they should have come from that specific industry. It turns out only 30% of unicorn founders of tech, consumer tech companies came from that industry and only 40% of Founders of SaaS enterprise type of companies came from that specific industry. So it's it's kind of easy jumping from insurance to databases to something else. And that's fine. And it, there's a lot of soft skills that are more important. There are a lot of characteristic things that are more important. And as long as you 
know more and learn more and learn faster than anybody else about a specific industry, then you're more likely to succeed than somebody who has worked in that industry for 30 years. That may lead some people to believe, okay, then a lot of these people were just you know, young kids that were naive and you know, tried something in an industry. And that's another stereotype that you know, a lot of these very successful founders were college students, they were 21, they were 19. And you know, we have a lot of examples of those. But when you look at the data, the median founder of a billion dollar company was 34 years old in tech and 42 years old in healthcare and biotech. So these people had experience. They had worked for their own, they had started companies before, or they had worked for other companies before, on average for 11 years before starting a company. So it was a long path for them. And you know, I guess I will go into what are some of these things that do matter. Another thing that I found was about you know, solving a personal problem. I think a lot of people think, you know, you need to have a chip on your shoulder. You founders are successful who have experienced this problem in their own life. They were their own customers. And that narrative makes sense. And I guess a lot of people try to paint a thread of a narrative that makes sense. But the data shows that's not the reality. A lot of these founders were opportunity driven. They realized there's a good opportunity in the market. They realized they have the resources to go after that. And they became the best you know, team to know about that market and to go and disrupt that market without necessarily being their own customer. And I think that one bad thing that comes from these types of stereotypes is, you know, you see a lot of people creating grocery delivery startups because that's a problem they experienced. And not a lot of people go after solving climate change or agriculture or food or water. These kind of, you know, global trillion dollar challenges that it's nobody specifics problem, but it's, it's a lot of, you know, global type of challenges and problems that are, you know, much bigger opportunities than the whole technology industry altogether. There's also a lot of myth that I found around the company itself. So for example, I think a lot of people think, you know, competition is a bad thing. When they pitch, when they talk to media, they try to say, we don't have competition. Nobody knows this idea. Nobody has done this before. It turns out 85% of unicorns had competition from day one. Only 15% did not have competition. Now, what sort of competition you have, that's an important point. So over 50% were competing with old, sleepy, giant, incumbent companies. Let's say in fintech. If you're going after Visa and Amex and JP Morgan, that's a good opportunity. These are billion-dollar opportunities. It's an educated market. They have 100 or maybe 10 billions of dollars worth of inefficiencies that you as a young and hustling founder can go and solve that problem and create a massive billion dollar company for yourself. And we can see that in Brex, you know, that comes in and disrupts a billion dollar part of a problem that an incumbent did not solve. The other one is fragmented market. So if you're competing in a market that's like 20, 30 market players, each with two, 3% market share, that's also a good type of competition. You can come in and you can consolidate and you can raise a lot of funding and go and become the tech first best player in the market. Maybe an example, there is Flexport, you know, in the freight forwarding business, a lot of old players, a lot of, you know, fragmented market, you come in and you create, you know, a consolidated play. If you're copying another startup that's raised a lot of funding, then you're less likely to succeed. So if a market has a bunch of other startups that have raised a ton of money and you're just copying their idea, then that's bad competition. But generally competition is not a bad thing, especially if it's with incumbent type of companies.
I guess if you wanted to go on. Yeah, yeah, no, I think, um, you know, that's super interesting. And it'll be hard to find a fintech startup that has no competition. Yeah. Right. I mean, in a very traditional industry. Speaking of fintech, at the end of the day, this is a, a fintech podcast, right? What percentage of the companies in your data set were fintech companies? <laughs> that's, that's a great question. I think it, if I remember correctly, it was 8.8%, so almost 9% of all the billion dollar companies founded in the past 15 years, they were fintech companies. Interesting. And within those, I mean, some of the names that, that you looked at it, that stand out to me were you know, Stripe, PayPal, Affirm, Brex, some investors as well, right? Yeah. I, I think you have a mix of, of things that you've just been mentioning. You have the very young founders, mm-hmm. Stripe and Brex, right? But then you have PayPal and Affirm, particularly, you know, Max Lefchin launching Affirm already having this very significant experience. What did you learn by talking specifically to these fintech companies? Yeah, so I think in all three examples that you mentioned, they all share one common thing. And let me tell you what that thing is. And that's the core part of the book. And that's one of the most significant signals that I found in the data. Entrepreneurs who have started a company that was a small success, had a small outcome, they are a lot more likely, about 3.5 times more likely, to go and start a billion-dollar company in their next try. Even founders who had failed in their first company, they were 1.6 times more likely to go on and create a billion-dollar company in their next try. And I guess that's the theme of the book, that you know, a lot of these myths about you need to be technical, you need to be young, you need to be... A lot of these things don't matter. What matters is you go out... You build something, you create a company, you create that side hustle, you learn from that. If you fail, fail forward, try something else, start another company. Eventually, you will become a super founder and you would create these billion-dollar companies. So specifically about Stripe, you know, we would think of them, you know, they were billionaires by the time they were 25. So we would think that they are, okay, they're first-time founders, they got lucky, amazing. Stripe, I think it was their third company. Their first company was an auction management tool for sellers on eBay. And they were like super young. They created this company and the company was acquired for, I think, $4.5 million by a Canadian public company. By any means, that's not a massive success. You wouldn't call them successful serial entrepreneurs with $500 million exits. It was a $4.5 million exit. But that was the perfect preparation for them to come in and then start the kind of next company that pivoted and became Stripe. Same thing in Brex. You know, you had Enrique as a guest in your podcast before. And the same story about, you know, Enrique and Pedro, they started a fintech company in Brazil before starting Brex. And that was, you know, that was a good outcome. Still, it was a small outcome in a non-US kind of way, but that was the best preparation for them to come in and build a billion-dollar company. Obviously, for Max, he had a much bigger outcome. It was PayPal before creating a firm. But I think PayPal was his fifth company and Affirm was his ninth company. So he failed a bunch of times in the middle and he had a bunch of ideas that didn't work out. And I think that's that's the thing that, you know, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Keep on building and, you know, your big companies would come on. And how about, we, we haven't talked a lot about education, right? Uh, what can you tell us about the educational background of these founders? And since this is the Wharton FinTech podcast, <laughs> did, did Wharton show up in your research? That's a great question. So 
we can look at education in a number of different things. One is education level. So what degree you have. Did you have a PhD or did you have a master's? Did you have an MBA? And there's a lot of biases in different things. Some people think dropouts are good. Again, that's a stereotype of, you know, college dropout. That's only 7% of unicorns. And Ivy League college dropout, that's only 4% of unicorns. A lot of people have biases against MBAs. They say, you know, the MBA is a bad thing. Or, you know, maybe a lot of investors say, you know, just go and do something else. Some investors may have the reverse, may have a bias for MBAs. Turns out 21% of unicorn founders of their MBA uh, had an MBA degree. And when you look at all these degrees, it turns out the degree isn't correlated with success. So whether you were a dropout or had an MBA or a PhD or law degree, what level of education you had, that did not correlate with success. Now, on the ranking of the university, that did correlate with success. And I think that kind of is common sense that, you know, people who went to Stanford, MIT, Harvard, they created, you know, a lot of these billion dollar companies. So on average, the founders of these billion dollar companies went to schools that ranked better. However, when you look at the full distribution of these, you know, 200 something billion dollar companies that were created in my data set, there are as many of them who went to schools not in the top 100 as those that went to schools in the top 10. So it looks like a barbell distribution. There's a ton that were top 10. There's a ton that didn't go to any schools. And on your question on Wharton, they did great. I mean, after Harvard, MIT, and Stanford, it is Wharton. Wharton comes fourth in terms of the number of unicorn founders that they've produced in the past 15 years. Uh, I have one example of that. I interviewed the founders, uh, Nat Turner and Zach Weinberg of Flatiron Health, $2 billion acquisition by Roche in the book, talking about, you know, their entrepreneurial background. And they have the exact same kind of hustle background of, you know, they started a pizza delivery company. They started baseball, you know, card selling marketplace. They started an ad tech company, and then they started the healthcare company. Amazing. Well, if you talk about the PayPal mafia, you know, we have, we have uh, <laughs> Musk as one of our alums. Now, fourth is good, but if you know me, you know I'm competitive, so I I, I gotta do my part to help bring that <laughs> uh, bring that to number one at some point. Let's make it first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that that's that's super interesting. I, what do you hope to do with the research, and you know what what is your hope? What kind of impact do you want the book to have in the industry? Uh, less bias, I think. There is narrative bias. There is a lot of bias that gets formed on Twitter and the way people talk about what makes for a successful founder, the patterns that people have seen. My goal is to show investors and show founders that there are all these other patterns and a lot of these things that don't matter. So don't beat yourself up if you didn't come from a top 10 school or you didn't have, if you're non-technical or you're a solo founder, all these things, they don't matter. You can still be successful. So I think data can help reduce bias. One other thing that it can do also is, you know, create a framework for decision-making. Like it helps me as an investor to become a better investor by, you know, comparing deals. You know, I have deal A and I have deal B. Deal A needs to go against the data in three different elements. Deal B has to go against the data in five different elements. So I better pick deal number A, even if my intuition, even if my heart tells me go with B. And that's where, you know, data can help you make a better investor. So you are using 
personally i definitely am yeah i definitely am using you know uh, data for sourcing and for decision making you know what 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 companies i want to invest in because you know as investors we can't you know invest in 100 companies a year we take you know a couple shots every year every fund and it's very hard to make a decision on your one thing that you want to you know spend one day a week of uh, for the next you know decade sitting on the board and helping the company become you know a 10 billion dollar success yeah yeah so Sounds like maybe you could even turn this into uh, into some sort of software, right? Sure. Yeah, you you can. You would probably need a lot more data, and I think you're still a little bit far away from automatically being able to do everything. But I think you know, as as long as this helps reduce bias and helps make better decisions, that's that's a good enough first step. How about for entrepreneurs, right? So we hear what you're trying to accomplish for investors and reduce bias, which is great. We have in the audience entrepreneurs who are already giving it a go, already building, but also people who are considering taking that step, right? What do you hope aspiring and current entrepreneurs get out of the book? Yeah, I think, you know, in each chapter, I try to give, you know, concrete advice that what this data means. For example, the data showed the number of co-founders does not correlate with success. I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs who think they exactly need to be two co-founders. So it's them and their co-founder, and they find two amazing people that they want to attract, but they want the co-founder title. And they think because most successful companies exactly have two founders, I'm not going to hire you. I'm not going to give you the co-founder title. And my advice is, you know, it matters who you have in your core team. So if it means you have four co-founders, just do it. Bring four amazing people around the table. It's, you know, you, you're still the CEO. You can still, you know, make the decisions. A lot of, you know, trying to conform to certain narratives. I think a lot of entrepreneurs are just may try to make sure this is some sort of a personal story or personal problem that they have or create these, you know, or when they go and pitch, they spend 10 minutes saying how my past, you know, blah, 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 blah. And it shouldn't necessarily matter. And in, in terms of, you know, fundraising and all these different things, you know, how I, I talk about, how, you know, some advice about how this data can help you become better. But the most important thing is look at entrepreneurship as a journey. And, you know, if your first company was not as successful, go at it again. Take those learnings, start another company, try to make a small acquisition out of this one. Try to build something next time. Go at it. Maybe this would be the billion dollar company. Just see that patterns that if if by 22 you you don't have a billion dollar company you're not a failed founder <laughs> keep at it again and you'll you'll get there outstanding advice well ali before we let you go we always love to ask all of our guests to tell us a bit about their personal side right so maybe you can tell us a bit about your hobbies and you know what, what you enjoy outside of of writing and investing if I get time for any of that, <laughs> <laughs> there are two things that I like. I play tennis with my friends on, on weekends. That that's very fun. I am also learning to to become a pilot. So you know, flying Cessnas. I think that's that's a great hobby. It, it brings a lot of discipline to your mindset and the things that you want to achieve. You are probably the third or fourth in the last couple months <laughs> who's, uh, who's talked about either learning or having learned to to fly. We even had a helicopter. Uh, pilot really yeah which was that's that's also impressive yeah i love the views it just you know helps put you in perspective and also you know it, it takes so much attention to communicating with with the uh, 
tower and everything else that it just takes away all the different thoughts and you'll be you'll be zen you'll be in the moment amazing well ali thank you again for joining us thanks for writing the book i know it's it's not easy so you know but now it's it's something that you created so i'm i'm excited <laughs> for everyone else everyone in the world to read it super founders highly recommended and now you of course you're a friend of Wharton so you are invited to join us uh, anytime thank you it was a great conversation thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton fintech podcast if you like the show please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments it means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners if you want more content from our fintech community please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. 